Good morning. Our Bible reading today is from the book of John and we're reading chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. A friend of mine called Justin Moat uh, tells the story of a carpenter. Now, in the 1970s, <clears throat> excuse me, frog in my throat today, Uganda was ruled by a cruel dictator called Idi Amin. Amin expelled all Asians from the country. He also expelled many Christians, one of whom was this carpenter who came to live in England. And this man, when he left, was working in the Anglican Cathedral in the city of Entebbe. And he was responsible for making 60 pews that would be inside that building. But the job was unfinished. One day he received a letter that many people did receive and that everyone dreaded. And it said, you are to be out of the country within 24 hours. One day to go. What was he going to do? He gathered around him a group of Ugandan apprentice carpenters and he showed them how to make one pew. And as he left the country, he said, that's how to do it. Copy that. That's how to do it. Copy that. Now, there are elements of that story which bring us right into our scripture reading today. There's the sense of urgency of an imminent departure. Jesus and his disciples in this scene are in an upper room in a house in Jerusalem and they're celebrating the Passover feast and Jesus not long before has just blown everybody's minds by getting up and washing the feet of his disciples taking the role of the humblest servant which no lord and teacher would ever do and he's been deeply troubled after that and he's warned them one of you is going to betray me. Now readers of John's gospel have an inside track on who this is because there was one disciple that Jesus was specially close to it could well have been John himself and he leans in and asks Jesus to reveal the identity and Jesus says it's the it's the man I will give this morsel of bread that I'm about to dip into the dish and so we know that the betrayer is Judas Iscariot one of the twelve and now Judas has just left in verse 30 and it says in an ominous way, he's gone out into the night, a dark place for a dark soul to go. And from now on, the clock is ticking because Judas will set in motion the official machinery that will take Jesus to the cross. What is Jesus going to say in these last few precious hours? How will he teach his disciples 
as he's leaving, what is he going to say? He has so much to tell them and they seem to have learned so little, don't they? They've grasped so little of the true nature of his character and his identity and his mission. And Jesus has very little time left. So he cuts right to the heart of the matter and gives them this, like his most simple, profound and important summary of how they are to live. And it's there in verse 34 if you want to turn to it. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, just for, take a breath and imagine for a moment the intensity of these words. Every word Jesus utters is powerful and interesting and important. But these now have a particular power, don't they? Because this is amounting to the, the effect of a last speech, a last will and testament. And these next four chapters in John's Gospel are known as the farewell discourses as Jesus says goodbye and gives them this profound teaching that they're going to build their lives on and like that carpenter in Uganda Jesus teaches through personal example through modeling the way of life that he intends his disciples to pursue a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you here's what to do do this copy that and that means that for every follower of Jesus in every country and every generation these words were written down for us that's how you do it copy that and there are two aspects of this passage today that I want us to particularly drill into to bring to your attention and they group around this extraordinary new command and hold together firstly the glorious cross and secondly the new command the glorious cross and the new command so firstly, the glorious cross, and I'm picking up here in verse 31. There's a kind of a change of pace here in the narrative. As soon as Judas is gone, Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples. It's as if Judas leaving has, has sort of unblocked the way for a new level of intimacy and openness. And there's almost an excitement in the air. There's a note of triumph because Jesus knows that his hour has finally come. And it's the climax of all his work, all his saving and redeeming work is coming. It's just a day away. And so let's read verses 31 to 33 again. Picking up at verse 31. When he was gone, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, there are a couple of things here, aren't there, that are a little bit obscure. First of all, who is this son of man? You notice that expression in verse 31, now the son of man is glorified. The answer is, this is Jesus himself. It's a title that's taken from the Old Testament that Jesus took and he applied it to himself specially. He uses it all the time and he does so with good reason because in the key passage where this title is used, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is depicted in the most amazing and glorious divine terms coming before God and yet the title suggests that it is still a human being because after all, it's a son of man, it's a human. So who is this person? 
Now, back in Daniel's time, nobody had a clue, but now we know it's Jesus himself. Jesus is talking about himself as the Son of Man. And he's saying here that the Son of Man will be glorified. Glorified. And that God will be glorified in him. And thirdly, that God will glorify the Son, Jesus, in himself. Now, that, whatever else it is, is a lot of glory. I'm just going to put this Bible over here. A lot of glory. Now, what does glory mean? I think this is the second thing we need to get clear on, apart from Son of Man, is glory. There's a lot about this in the Bible, and the concept is very rich in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word that's translated glory literally means weight, weighty. And, of course, the most glorious substance that was available to the people in those times was gold. Here's some bit of gold in my finger. It's not pure. It's, I don't know, 9 or 18 carats or something. But it's heavy. It's heavy and weighty. So glory, weighty, means the permanent as against the temporary. It means the substantial and the important versus the trivial. It means the real as opposed to the unreal or the illusory. And when the Bible talks about God's glory, it is talking about his weightiness, his value, his importance. In other words, compared to anything else in all creation, God alone is permanent and real and God alone matters compared to anything else. Nothing but God matters. Now, the thing about weightiness is this. If you drop an object that's heavy into water, then there is a splash as the water makes way for the, the weighty object. And if you drop an, an object that's heavier onto some ice, the ice quakes. It shatters and makes way because the object to use the Bible language, has more glory than the ice. And when the reality of God comes down into our world and into our lives, he changes everything around. Things make way. And you know, every time God shows up in the Bible in person, the earth quakes. And that's not coincidental. The ground itself trembles. Everything makes way because he is the one supremely glorious being in the universe, the one supremely worthy being. Glory language is used when God reveals his splendour and his splendid activity. And Jesus is saying here, now get this, Jesus, a Jewish carpenter, is saying, now I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified. Now Jesus will be seen as supremely weighty, supremely worthy, supremely valuable supremely important and note well in these verses Jesus is sharing glory with God the Father and God himself gives glory to Jesus now to a devout Jew this was a blasphemous claim and many in our day still can't handle the fact that Jesus claimed to be divine claimed to be God and here he's making a claim to something that only God has a right to glory now, as he said that, the atmosphere in the room must have been electric. Because finally, Jesus is coming to his hour, the climax of his ministry, and his glory is going to be revealed fully. And here's the kicker. Where is Jesus going to be seen, enthroned in his majestic glory? The answer is the, at the cross. 
at the cross. His glory will be seen on the cross. Now, why do I say that? There can be no other interpretation of what he's saying in these verses. He's clearly talking about his death. Verse 33 is saying, I'm going to die soon. Where I'm going, you can't come now. I'm going beyond this world. I'm going to die and I'm going to die on the cross. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and just catch our breaths. Because what Jesus was saying was totally incomprehensible in that world. It was absolutely unbelievable. There was nothing glorious about a cross, nothing at all. A New Testament scholar Don Carson writes, The Romans deployed three methods of execution. Crucifixion was by far the cruelest. It was reserved for slaves, scumbags and traitors. No Roman citizen could be executed by crucifixion except by the explicit sanction of the emperor himself. The victim was tied or nailed to a cross. There he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs so as to keep his chest cavity open in order to breathe. Pretty soon he was racked with muscle spasms and collapsed in agony. But then he needed to breathe, so he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs and the cycle started again. This could go on for days, until eventually the victim died of suffocation. There's nothing glorious about a cross. By the way, people that were crucified were also naked. Now to the Roman world, the cross was a place of shame and disgrace and dishonour. They wouldn't joke about the cross. They wouldn't talk about it in polite company or in front of their children. And to the Jewish world, the Bible said, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. This method of execution suggests divine judgment, God's displeasure on that person. It is the lowest place of degradation. And yet Jesus says here, now the Son of Man is glorified, God is glorified in him, and God will glorify the Son in himself through the cross. How does this work? Now the answer must lie in what the cross would actually achieve. See, the cross reveals the heart of Jesus himself, and it reveals that it's a heart of love. All his life long, he'd been trying to tell the world how much he loved it, trying to communicate his love to the world. Now at the cross, he reveals fully a love that does not shrink back from any sacrifice, a love that will not hold back, a love that is capable of total self-abandonment. A love that lays down its life for his enemies, not just his friends. There is no greater love than the love of Jesus. And the cross is the revelation also of the power of Jesus. He's been teaching about the sin of the world, about its need for salvation, about how the world lies under the judgment and condemnation of a holy God, about humanity's desperate plight. People are lost in their sins, unable to save themselves. And Jesus has said, chapter 12 verse 32 I when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross will draw all people to myself so he's talking about the kind of death he's going to die and what it will achieve it will draw people to himself in other words the death of Jesus Christ is unlike the death of anyone else who's ever lived the death of a great leader a great king, a great politician, maybe a great teacher or an artist is an occasion for sadness and for recollection and for thanksgiving. But the death of Jesus actually achieves something far greater even than his life, even than his miracles and power, even than his teaching. 
The death of Jesus achieves this. He takes away the sins of the world by dying. The technical word is a propitiation, an offering that takes away sin. In his death on the cross, Jesus wrestled with all our greatest enemies, our sin, our death, and Satan himself. And he won by dying. And through his death, he set free a people that no one can number from every corner of the globe. Now that is glorious. That's glory. And so as he contemplates the death he must die and that he's come to do, Jesus is filled with two emotions, distress and excitement. There's a note of triumph in the air here. He knows what he's going to achieve in his death. That now the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be glorified. Now, I wish we had time today to reflect on these two other aspects of glory in the verses. That God the Father is glorified in Jesus and that God will glorify the Son in himself. But we don't have time for that today. We're going to press on. But you could look at that, I'm sure, uh, in your own time. Such is the glory of the cross. Now, in light of that teaching about what Jesus is going to achieve through being humbled, terribly humbled, through being degraded, through suffering and death and agony, now he gives them this, this stunning teaching. You see how the glory of the cross leads straight into verse 34. And here's that verse again. Get my Bible. Verse 34. Um, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I wonder what you felt as you heard those words. Let's be honest. Does it actually sound like a new command? Because if you know your Bible at all, you'll probably be familiar with the fact that the command to love has been made before now. Uh, there are two very significant places in the Old Testament where love has been commanded. The first is love for God in the great passage the Jewish people call the Shema. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. There's the command to love God. And then in the middle of Leviticus, the, in the, the, the great law book of the Old Testament, Leviticus 19 verse 18 says this, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. So love God, love your neighbour and those Two commands sum up the whole of God's law in the Old Testament. The 613 individual commands all flow from those original two. And the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words themselves, the first four relate to loving God and the second six relate to loving our neighbours. So we might say this is not really a new command, is it? Now, of course, Jesus is not ignorant of that fact. In fact, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are called the synoptics because they see together, uh, he's recorded as saying... This is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And then he says there's a second command like to it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And he says there's no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus knows about the command to love. And yet here at the big moment in John chapter 13, he says a new command I give you. Love one another. So what's new about the new command? Two things are new. Firstly, there's the scope of it and then there's the standard the scope and the standard and let me say as i've read and meditated and reflected on these words this week i felt like trembling 
because this is so challenging, so powerful. It's so simple that a toddler can learn John 13, 34 and repeat it. And it's so profound that the most mature Christian believer will spend the rest of their life trying to keep it and wondering at the depths of this command. Love one another as I have loved you. The scope. Now the Old Testament had commanded love your neighbour. And that doesn't just mean the people who live on either side of your terraced house. Uh, it extends to all those who are within your immediate sphere of influence. So your neighbour is your colleague and your boss. Your neighbour is your friends. Your neighbour is the people in your street. Uh, your neighbour is your family. They're within your sphere of influence. That's your neighbours. Now Jesus teaches a radical extension of the scope of love that his followers should have for one another. No matter who they are or where they are, all Christians are to love one another. Now we need to realise just how radical this was in the first century in the ancient world which was deeply divided and how it turned that world upside down. Now you know we've been following the events of the last few weeks with the tragic and unjust death of George Floyd and the protests that began in North America and spread around the world including to our own city of Manchester. You, you know how deeply people feel about segregation, about unequal treatment, about divisions and how deeply we yearn for a just society in which people are treated well and fairly. Now what we need to realise is that compared to Jesus' time, our world is really united because their world was incredibly divided by deep chasms that separated people. Their society was riven by distinctions that separated people and alienated people into different groups and never the twain would mix a lot of the time. People were locked into these groups. Let me give you a few of them. The educated and the uneducated. The slave and the free or the masters. The Jews and the Gentiles. Male and female. These groups are deeply, deeply divided. Let me just, just, just drill into one of them for a moment. Jew-Gentile. The Jews literally thought and talked about Gentiles as dogs. And by the way, dogs in, the, in that time were not the kind of nice, clean, fluffy animal that you have in your house and you sit on your lap and stroke. No, dogs were out in the streets, wild, savage, mangy, eating filth. You didn't want to go near a dog. They said that they thought of the Romans as dogs and they would not eat with them. Sorry, not Romans, Gentiles. So a Jew could not sit down and enjoy table fellowship and a meal with a, with a non-Jewish person. That's how big the division was. And on their side, the Gentiles looked at the Jews and thought of them as the most narrow-minded, bigoted and hateful group in the world. So you had this massive chasm. And that divide actually is behind much of the teaching in the New Testament about unity and coming together is that it was Gentiles and Jews coming together in the Church of Jesus Christ. The biggest division. But it wasn't the only one because there's divisions between uh, ethnic groups and gender and social status and wealth and slave and free. Now here is this Jewish peasant, Jesus of Nazareth, 
with his few followers who's been wandering around the country for three years teaching people telling them to love one another and that is what they did and after the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus a whole new kind of society was formed it was called the gathering or the ecclesia or we would say the church Paul the apostle wrote a few years later to a church in Turkey here in the church there is no Gentile or Jew there is no circumcised or uncircumcised there is no barbarian Scythian there is no slave or free but Christ is all and is in all you see how radical that was in their world can you imagine Within 200 years, these Christians, this despised minority faith, had turned the known world upside down. They changed an empire. In the year 197 AD, an early church leader called Tertullian wrote a long letter to the Roman authorities to plead for justice for the early church. And he described how Christians lived. And here's some, some of Tertullian's letter. On the monthly day, he says, if, if a Christian wants, each puts in a small donation of money, but only if it be their pleasure and only if they're able. For there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking and eating out, but they're used to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines, or banished to the islands, or shut up in the prisons, for nothing but their faithfulness to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. So they had this monthly gift of money, which they then used to help those in their community uh, who were in these various kinds of distress. And Tertullian then added some words that are very famous, you may have heard them. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. And this was the brand. This was what people said about Christians. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. It was the mark, the hallmark of the early Christian church. And it comes directly out of Jesus' teaching here in John 13, 34. That was the scope of the new command covered everyone in the glorious family of God worldwide. So there are Christians in Chad and in Latin America and in every corner of the world who you as a Christian are called to love as Jesus loved you. And that takes us to the second point of the newness. What's new about the new command is the standard. And this is where we should all be trembling, the standard, because Jesus says, as I have loved you, so love one another. Just as I have loved you, that's the standard. So a Christian friend watching today, let me just ask you a question. How has Jesus Christ loved you? How has he loved you? Think back to that scene of the foot washing that happened earlier on in the chapter, where Jesus got down from his place, his position of uh, prestige and status, took off his outer garments, went and filled a basin with water and went then wrapping a towel around his waist and washed the filthy feet 
of his 12 disciples, including the one who was going to betray him. That itself actually is a picture of the cross. In fact, it's a picture of the whole ministry of Jesus. He took off his outer garments, his glory that he'd known through all eternity as the eternal son of God. He took them off and came down from his place into our world. And he took on himself our flesh, became one of us, not just for a season, but permanently. Jesus still is a God-man. And having humbled himself to become a human, he took then the form of a slave, being humbled even to death on the cross. And the image of him washing filthy feet is an image of what he was doing at the cross, where he cleansed us. He died to make us clean. And he takes there the form of a slave, the lowest of the low, in order to cleanse his people. That is how Jesus Christ has loved us. He came all the way down. No journey was too far for him. No depth was too low for him. No extent was too far for him to love you and to give himself for you. He was abandoned, alienated and desolate because of you. He died on the cross with your name on his lips, with your name on his heart. He calls out to you even today, I love you, no matter who you are and what you've done. And therefore, how should we love one another in the Christian community? Here's the standard. As Jesus has loved us. That is the standard that we are held to. Now, there are many, many things we could say about this. And in our life groups, our small groups this week, I hope we can drill into this and try and be practical. I don't want to put so many practical things down that this sounds like um, some sort of law code. We're not legalists that grow about uh, the Christian church in the 20th century. A man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've got a book here. If I hold that up, can you see the picture of Bonhoeffer? There he is. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and church leader, very brilliant man, young man, but he was caught up in the struggles of uh, Nazi Germany and took a principled position against the Third Reich and against Adolf Hitler. He was actually involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, uh, was uh, caught and was imprisoned and was eventually hung uh, to death uh, one month, just one month before the Second World War ended. Uh, Bonhoeffer is famous for his insights into church life and into Christian community because he founded a number of Christian communities, the most famous of which was at a place called Finkenwalde. Now there he would bring young men who were going to be training for Christian ministry and he insisted that they didn't just study and learn their theology and learn their Bible but they also learned community and they lived together. And one of his most famous books is called Life Together. And in there, I just want to share three insights into how we love one another to give us something to chew on. And hopefully you can find more in your own meditation and in the life groups. The first thing is about community. Community. Bonhoeffer wrote this. Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened. Because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. The Christ in one's own heart is uncertain. The Christ in the word of another Christian 
is certain. So part of our love for one another is to have that level of community where we can speak to one another and help one another not to be discouraged and doubting and disheartened. Second element of, of love is actually confession, confessing our sins to one another. Here's Bonhoeffer again. In confession, he says, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. Now you can see there how the kind of love and the kind of community that Jesus is upholding means we should be free and able to confess our sins to one another. Now obviously you need to be wise about that. You need to be careful who you say what to. But there should be two, maybe three people within your church community who you can confess your sins to, knowing that you can trust them, knowing that they won't be polluted by it, and knowing that they will love you and accept you and forgive you and pray for you and give you strength to overcome that sin. Because sin wants to be alone, and but love for another person won't let them. Thirdly, there is the place of prayer. Prayer. A Christian community, says Bonhoeffer, either lives by the intercessory prayers of its members for one another or the community will be destroyed. It's powerful. We live by our prayers for one another. I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians when I'm praying for them, no matter how much trouble they cause me. In intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. So another aspect of loving one another, as Jesus has loved us, is that we pray for one another. And that will change the face of a person who you're struggling with, or you might even seem hateful or intolerable, and it will change their face in your mind as you pray for them into a pardoned sinner, one for whom Christ died. As love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. A, a new command in its scope and a new command in its standard. And may God give us the help and the grace to live according to this command, which Jesus has himself laid upon us. One final note in passing is this. If you look in your Bible again at verse 35 is the impact that such a community can have. Verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus here is saying he's going to die. He's going to go to another place. He's going to leave and go back to the Father. He's going to be resurrected and ascend. But he, he won't leave them alone. And the, ch the church of Jesus, the Christian community, will continue his mission throughout the world by loving one another. And in that love, that love we've just talked about, Jesus will be seen and known by a watching world if we will do it. So the stakes are high, aren't they? The stakes are high not just for us in being obedient to Jesus, but so that those around may see the reality of what we proclaim in the good news and may want it for themselves. Let's pray that God will help us to do that.
Shall we pray now? Lord, we uh, tremble when we read your word. We confess we're not people with that kind of love. We certainly don't have it naturally in our hearts. And very often we have failed you. And we bring those times perhaps fresh in our memory before you now and ask for your forgiveness, your grace and for the power to change. Lord, thank you that you're one who is rich in mercy. You don't hold our sins against us. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, as we've thought about the glory of your cross and how glorious it is, and we've thought about the new command that you've given us, we pray that you would change us right now to make us people who love one another just as Christ loved us. We ask it in his name. Amen.